0: Hey everybody, my name is Alex and this is Lunchbox Radio. Now, before we get started, I wanted to run a few things past you guys since this is not going to be a normal, since this will be a normal podcast and with everything going normally, but I'm looking at maybe going live on Twitch during these recordings um, so you guys can all see my beautiful face as I freak out and talk about cartoons on the internet. The other thing I wanted to warn you guys about is I'm going, just out of a of of circumstance, I have picked some shows to talk about that, let's say, are not publicly available anywhere in the United States. And what I mean by that is that their licenses have expired and nobody's, like, snapped them and Crunchyroll has not snapped them up yet. Because let's be honest, it's like Crunchyroll or Disney. Those are our two options at this point. Kind of. But uh, suffice it to say that I'll be talking about, and I will always, as I did when I did um, my episode on um, Paranoid Agent, which you can go and check out in the feed and whatever you listen to me right now, I will flag probably multiple times that you will not be able to find this. It is nowhere. You will have to go to the shady parts of the grove. (laughs) To find this. You will have to sail the high seas. And. Or some other effect. Usually when I handle shows like that. I don't. Um, what's the best word for it. I don't publicize. Super loud. Where I get it. Because the more you. Where I, where I get my hands on the show. If I don't already have it from like. Watching anime for too long. In my life. Um, because. If that's the only way to get and see the show, I don't want the authorities. I don't want the man finding out too much specific detail because that's how that stuff gets taken down, and that's how media disappears because people want money because people rightfully want money to license it. But sometimes you have a harmony gold situation. and the only time you're going to see Macroth, and if you do some real shady shit to get some macros, um, that is thankfully coming to an end um, in terms of Macroth, But with, uh, with, I think, two of the shows so far that I have in the upcoming, like, run of podcasts I'm doing, pretty hard to find. Which is made weirder because when you hear these two shows, you'll be like, really? Those shows... They were prestige projects to which I'm like, yeah. (laughs) In the early 2000s, good luck. Um, But, and some of you may have some ideas of what the shows I'm talking about could be. But, on that note, let's jump into what we're talking about today. And that is a little show from early this year, actually. Um, I've been pretty current lately, stunningly, weirdly. Um, (laughs) Called... Stop a bisco. Now, before we jump into Sabaku Bisco proper, I want to talk about I want to talk about sci-fi story premises just a little bit because I think it's really important when you're dealing with this show because this shows the show's selling point is a was always a sci-fi story premise and a fucking badass trailer that made you expect and want a lot out of this show. Um, and the reason why I want to talk about sci-fi storylines is because you can. Lots of people like to think about about, about it as hard and soft sci- sci-fi. Hard sci-fi is you know everything. Everything is really grounded. Everything makes sense. Everything is really explained in meticulous detail. And soft sci-fi really depends on the user to depends on the viewer to fill in the gap. At least this is my opinion of it. Um, to, Depends on the user to fill in the gaps. Uses the user uses the viewers' collective understanding of sci-fi world to kind of form what you would what what the rules are here. And one of the best ways you could use hard sci-fi is you can. Suppose a whole bunch of rules and not explain them. Just not explain them. You see this pretty often in um, things like um, Star Wars, for example. The hilarious hard sci-fi thing in Star Wars is that the Force is just a bunch of microorganisms called chlorian. The Force is like magic. But people needed it to be explainable, so they came up with chlorians. <laughs> and Star Wars has kind of, like, taken that football and run with it, in a way, in that, like, you watch any Star Wars thing, of which there are myriads now, or you read or you play any Star Wars thing, and just kind of everybody knows the hard rules. Everybody knows what the deal with lightsabers is. Everybody knows what the deal with force lightning and, like, the Force is. Everybody knows that, like, Jedi are weird, a weird cross between space wizards and samurai. Um. But the long and short of it is, that's a good version of what hard sci-fi looks like. A good version of soft sci-fi is... Uh, it... It's harder for me to put my finger on that, but that's not really what we're dealing with here. So on that note, let's um, let's jump into, uh, Bisco. So the series follows um two characters mainly, um a character named Akaboshi named Bisco Akaboshi and a character named this is a mouthful, Milo Nekoyanagi. And Bisco is what what this world calls a mushroom keeper. And mushroom keepers are... You come to understand by the end of the show, they are basically traveling mushroom farmers who use mushrooms for all kinds of odd and end purposes from medical to combat to travel to just being food. Only the thing about this world is that that makes it even more of a like f- hard sci-fi feeling is that this world had a catastrophe happen. And actually a perfect example of soft, hot sci-fi kind of is something like um, Ravemaster. Like the beginning of Ravemaster, that the opening song of Ravemaster, which is fantastic, the English dub opening by Real Big Fish talks about the world exploding like 60 years ago, like sometime very, very recently. Um, But doesn't super explain what's going on. That's an example of soft sci-fi. This show presents that end of the world scenario. Like first 10 seconds of the first episode is the world's going boom. And then you smash cut to um, who we come to find out is Bisco trying to cross through a checkpoint into um into one of the prefectures that has kind of recovered is a strong word reformed and repopulated is a better word and in this universe there's this disease called the rust and the rust is Imagine, like, a slow-moving version of the, of the, um, Stone Light from, um, from Dr. Stone, but nobody knows what, nobody quite understands what causes the rust, what causes somebody to, to contract rust, but everybody suspects, but everybody's pretty convinced that it comes, that knows that it ain't come from the rust winds, which means winds blow through rust, like, particles of rust people breathe them in and then they start to rust from like a little patch on your skin almost like eczema to until it's your entire body and you're like a solid rusted through thing um and this is seen as this like central MacGuffin for this for this world the reason why bisco is passing through this one village is he's looking for a legendary mushroom called the rust eater and he's looking for the rust eater so he can save his mentor father figure aspirational figure of older man named Javi, who is not just a mushroom keeper you find out later that he is like the big wig the head of the mushroom keepers the leader of the mushroom keepers this is not super explained and this is my first this is where we come to my first problem with this show is that this show explains just enough for you to follow but not enough for you to understand go on the on the first on the first watch through. but jobby it's like a lovable old kook who's like really talented and strong and and Bisco is trying to save him, so he ends up getting caught by a um, by a actual named character, Inosuke, um, who is the uh, like, who is the, who is the bureaucratic, like station head of the checkpoint, and they mis- they think he's a monk, and then when he can't prove that he's a monk, they're like, "Who the fuck are you?" And he's like, "Oh." You're the one the government wants. And once they're into the city, once they're into the city, um, you meet a bunch of elements. You meet Milo Nekoyanagi, who you kind of meet along the same timeline as Bisco because the first episodes are chopped up a bunch. The first couple episodes are chopped up a bunch to, like, be ping-pong between Milo and Bisco as they get closer to each other. That's really the first episode. And Milo is a... is your friendly neighborhood back-alley doctor. The government... The, the, the city's government official... I forget what the city name is. But the city's government official, who's a deeply shady dude, named Kurokawa, has given him a medical compound machine so he can make medical compounds and treat people. And he's trying to make the most of it. He, try- he treats all the, girl- all the girls in the local brothel. He treats, like, a little kid. He, tre- he treats, like, uh, like, families and stuff like that. People living in this, like, now dilapidated, falling-down-around-them, rust-ridden city that they live in. And then there's his sister, who you're introduced to... A, hey, you're introduced to these characters, and if you saw them by themselves, you'd almost say, like, those, those, fucking, those aren't from the same goddamn show. Just straight up. Um, because Bisco has a very 90s design. Um, Milo has a much more... like... contemporary design, as far as he goes. And then... You have fucking Powu, who is like, she looks like a 1990s Yu Yu Hakusho villain. It's goddamn great. And Pau, you find out that part of the reason Milo is working so hard at the doctor is because he's trying to find a cure for the rust because his sister... Uh, like over half of her body has rusted she's contracted rust and over half of her body has rusted um this is similar to jobby who almost half of his body has rusted and then there's milo and Fisco, who at this point at this point in the story don't like they haven't caught it yet they will eventually each of them but they haven't caught it yet and it's not like every other character you meet in this story has this problem and this story starts from a pretty grounded place in that these two characters go on a journey to save two people and it has a really strong it has actually a really strong first three episodes when you're in the city um Pau and you end up realizing that Pau is the is the like commanding officer of the watch which is the actual public arm of the police and she's a nightmare she's incredibly strong she rides a motorcycle like a badass she just fights with a giant pipe it's incredible and she goes up against bisco bisco actually wins and but in the process Bisco found Milo because he wanted to find somebody who could treat Jobby because Jobby was injured. And here's the first not great thing with this show. I talked earlier about how the first episode treats time as like bouncing back and forth between Bisco and between Milo. They're doing something there. But what they're doing there is that they are trying to ingratiate you to both characters at once. But what this episode functionally ends up doing is kinda of losing the kind of losing the thread on the time on time at all. Like well, you don't know whether this the first episode takes place over a couple hours, couple days, a week. You have no clue. What you do know is that eventually Milo and Visco Find eventually Bisco finds Milo gets Milo to treat Javi and they end up deciding that like oh Milo's like oh you're looking for a mushroom that can cure the rust you know a lot about mushrooms I've only had to hint I, he, at this point Milo kind of understands that mushrooms probably hold the secret to dealing with rusting but he doesn't know anything beyond that so he just like Making medications out of um, mushroom and of diluted mushrooms in his compound machine, and like doing his best. And he realizes, "Oh, you're a mushroom keeper. You understand mushrooms. I understand medical science. You seem a little shaky on that. Let's team up." And Bisco begrudgingly says, "Yes," and then they set off on a journey. Now, many other shows would take the whole run of the show to get you from that setup, which happens over about two episodes, happens over two episodes, actually, exactly, to the them finding the mushroom eater and it being a big deal. But what this show does and what this show falls apart, and you should be able to tell this from my thoughts on the first episode and treatment of time, it's, it's pacing It's interesting on one level, but it's, like, atrocious on another level. Because the, thi- the thing, this show feels like it needed more room to do, to tell the story it wanted to tell and have a conversation about the stuff it wanted to have a conversation about in its world. Um... And what I mean by that is by, I want to say episode, episode eight or nine, they have, um, by not entirely through the series, um, by, um, what's it called? By episode seven, so almost smack dab in the middle of the show, they have found the Rust Eater. Actually, by, um, I think by episode six, even, they found the Rust Eater. They got there, like, you see the, you see the MacGuffin, you you see the key to to the Pandora's box scenario, and then they bring back an early villain. They bring back Kurakawa. And you, you've seen Kurokawa's like special forces and you, into the main, one of the side characters, a character named, hold on. I gotta get back to the character tier. A character by the name of, um, of um, Ochiagama is, it ran away from his elite guard because she's like, this job isn't worth it. I'm just gonna get me killed. Fuck this shit. I'm out. And what you learn in like a clever bit of like really good storytelling that tells you what this show can do when it's firing on all cylinders is that every like every, every kind of like elite guard member of Korokawa's like weird Barry Pulp movie-esque wears wears similar identical suits and a bunny mascot head are all fed this what's called a balloon worm which ultimately will expand and kill you if you don't take this like weird medicine to keep it dormant. And Um, Ochagama has escaped and she's like Posted up in a temple and she's eating quietly after she has her first run with um, Akaboshi, with with Bisco and Milo. They come upon her again and she's like choking violently. And Milo takes one look at her, like holds her head in his hands, looks at her eyes. He's like, oh, that's what this is. And then just kisses the shit out of her. And then he like rips his head back and he pulls this giant fucking, like, bloated worm out of her throat. And... Bisco's like, fucking, excuse me, what is that? And Milo explains the balloon worm thing. It's a great piece of storytelling. And... up until that point... that's really this kind of storytelling that they're doing with the show. They're presenting... these moments in the show that are... ...that you realize exist... ...and are explained... ...as soon as you realize they exist... ...and it's this really great, like... ...of course... ...the, like, super wanted mushroom eater... ...wouldn't know... ...what fucking crooked government officials... ...who are basically Yakuza members... ...are doing to their personal guard... ...he has no reason to... ...but... ...Milo knows... ...because more than likely... He's seen some people die from one of these things because they left and they didn't take the medication. And so that's a great point of storytelling. This show doesn't keep that up. It doesn't keep that pace. From kind of episode seven on, it's this weird attempt at something else. So the... A great comparison for this show is the it's actually a comedy um, that you've probably heard of called Desert Punk, and Desert Punk is so much fun. It's a it partially because it's a comedy, but also because like in almost the same way that Ghost Stories got full liberty as a dub, Desert Punk got full liberty that as a dub. Like they're along the same lines, like. And one of the reasons they were they were able to do that is because with Desert Punk everybody in that show wears a helmet for a large part of the show. So you have you have a lot of like shots of somebody's head in a helmet and like you can overdub whatever you want onto that. And they go bananas with that shit in that show. But what what Desert Punk had is that it ramped... It had enough episodes to ramp up into itself and to, like, go on misadventures and have fun. And because it was a comedy, it could tonally shift and tonally be different from itself and then take a serious turn, and it was fine. This show needs at least a couple more episodes... Than what it was given to really flesh it out. I would be interested to see the manga for this for that very reason. Because shortly after they find the rust eater, they bring back, like I said, Korokawa. and Korokawa steals it, and you realize, and you learn that Korokawa used to be a mushroom keeper, but he was kicked out of he was kicked out of he was kicked out of the commune essentially because everybody was like, "No, you're a piece of shit." Like, you're using mushrooms to do some fucked shit. Like, because Korokawa has essentially figured out a way to use mushroom spores to control people. To to basically achieve mind control. And at this point, you realize that most of his elite guard, with the exception of, um... Of, um... Ochagama were being mind-controlled. Like, they, they they, are, like, husks. Being, with Their brains have been almost entirely replaced with... Their brains have been almost entirely replaced with, like, mushroom tops on the top of their heads. That's why they were wearing the helmets. And that doesn't... But that doesn't but the way they act once you realize once they show you that it's not the way they acted in the beginning of the show the way they're acting by the time you encounter them as like the mushroom headed idiots with like black eyes and like being mind controlled by by Kurakawa is they're like almost brain dead zombies who do what he who do what he says without any flair and the way they demonstrate this and I think this is another this is a this is a move that a lot of anime make that I think very few anime under, sometimes understand how to do it well. So um, if you watch if you want, if you watch um, Anime Abandoned, Bennett the Sage talks about um, a show that does it very well High School of the Dead. And there's a character in that who is straight up a military otaku. He just and he's very much a addition to like the stereotypes in zombie media, but he's also an addition on behalf of the audience so the audience can have kind of a stand-in character who they can identify with. But with the way they use him there is the way they do many things in High School of the Dead, which is proving to more and more people to be as excellent as it was when it came out. Um, Is is very adept at using him as a character to be kind of the lens of a normal person. When you do a character like Korokawa as, like, a hopeless nerd, there's a fine line you need to walk. I think probably the best comparison for Korokawa is actually, um, Seto... Is actually, um, what's his face? Maximilian Pegasus from Yu-Gi-Oh! in that Maximilian Pegasus from Yu-Gi-Oh! is a weird animation nerd who got to live his fantasy and then got superpowers and too much money. Kurakawa just seems like a run-of-the-mill nerd and it does but it doesn't it doesn't inform his It doesn't inform his way of villainy ever or his way of being a character ever. Maybe the bunny helmets. That's about it. But the like in in the way that like once um, when you're watching Kaiba um, duel with uh, Pegasus you realize like oh Pegasus is like he's not even an anime nerd he's specifically like Looney Tunes era 1930s cartoon nerd and he's devised an entire deck for himself that just like oozes that feeling, oozes that Steamboat Mickey, oozes that Bugs Bunny, oozes that Looney Tunes Daffy Duck bullshit and it's awesome. Kurakawa seems like he like his character isn't that doesn't feel that fleshed out. And he also doesn't explain a whole lot of his motives as to why he wants Akaboshi, why he wants Akaboshi, why he wants Bisco dead, or why he wants him in general, or why he's doing what he's doing. And... when he shows up again to become the main villain, essentially, it... it feels like they've... We're like, oh fuck, we're running out of runway and we need to get this plane off the ground. And that's what they decided on. And it. And then the show from there takes this turn into a different. into what they want to be a different show, but is not a better show. It's not as interesting as it could have been. Mainly because they have this very. Yaoi boys love moment between... Bisco and between Milo. Uh, like... Milo... Who up until now has been kind of... A sheltered back alley... I know this sounds weird... But a sheltered back alley doctor... Whose older sister has always protected him. Now has someone he wants to protect. Now has someone he looks up to. Now has someone he wants to kind of like... The show puts with... Puts as... Be with for life. And the show a little suggest that Milo might be some shade of queer. Um, but... He... So he basically he uses drugs to knock out Fisco, ultimately. And then he goes after his sister, who is captured by Kurakawa. Why? It doesn't super matter why. Um, and in this process... Eventually, the show commits to Bisco dying, basically. And when Bisco dies, and they give you an explanation for why Karakawa would want to do what he's doing, but he doesn't. It doesn't. The the best villain, as as interestingly enough, the best Marvel villains have shown us. The best villain plans are ones that seem logical, are ones that seem like they are addressing something in the world and it's not just cackling nonsense. Kurakawa seems like it's cackling nonsense. Kurakawa's idea is that he wants to control both the rust and the cure to the rust and hopes that nothing goes wrong so he can get rich quick By being a super crook, by being like the shadow leader of the government and the shadow controller of the rust eater vaccine, basically. And it's just like, it's not, it's not an original plan. It's not the culmination of it basically leads to him piloting a giant, basically leads to him pulling a attack on Titan with a Titan who can breathe. Fucking fire and rust. And it just doesn't. The stakes are high. It it gets to like apocalypse level. But. And I'm going to reference Soul Eater here because I think Soul Eater is a good. is a good reference. In shows like Soul Eater, in, in, in Soul Eater, eventually Dekishin gets broken broken out, breaks free, and exists in the world for, like, at least a year. At least six months to a year, The Dekishin, like, exists, and it's just around. is a thing that the entirety of the main cast and the entirety of the very sprawling side cast of of um of Soul Eater has to deal with like on a daily, weekly, like basis. They go out and they like cleanse places of the madness constantly. Stein goes insane. Um and the I think that the key point to making you understand how big of a problem the big bad evil thing seal the way is because they introduce this basically giant meat mech, this giant fire person mech that Kurakawa is, um, piloting. I forget what it's called, but it is the thing that caused the giant explosion, it's the thing that caused the end of Tokyo and presumably the end of much of the world. And they don't let it exist for long enough. And I know this sounds weird. I know this sounds odd. But if you look at something like Soul Eater and you see the back half of that series, the, like, back 24, there's a, like I think that series is like 52 episodes, the back half of that series. The back half of that series is them dealing with, oh, fuck, we let Takishin out and it's been a month and shit's kind of weird. Or if you look at something even like Attack on Titan, Attack on Titan, the Titans have existed. They, the Titans have existed for generations. They just showed back up one day, and also they showed back up in a real way, like after a time skip, and that makes them this real looming threat. That this giant fireman mech doesn't really have the opportunity to be. I mean, man made of fire, not fireman. He's got a hat and a hose. Um, but. And let me just double check. Cause so I know, so I know so my brain knows. From episode like eight. From episode, I want to say. The last three episodes, I believe. Um, yeah, the, the the last three episodes, actually, the, th- the thing that they're fighting at the end is called the Tessigen. From the last three episodes, from episode 10 to 12, meaning the last third of this show, the last fourth of this show, they're fighting this thing, and it doesn't... It It doesn't ring as... It doesn't ring as perilous as it wants to. And I don't know whether that's me having seen too many, too much stuff like this, but it does, like, something just isn't working. The, the Testogen doesn't feel like a, feels like a threat, but it doesn't feel like a threat in the way that, say, the Keish, once again, the Keishan in Soul Eater does. And it doesn't feel like a threat in the way that like the Titans do in Attack on Titan. It feels like just nobody knows what to do. The only person who knows what to do is one is like a handful of people, and they're doing it, and it'll get done. <laughs> and then they bring Bisco back in like the. They bring Bisco back in the in episode eleven. And here's where it really kind of falls apart. Because up until this point, you've been told that, like, you rust out, you're dead. And Bisco rusted out for reasons that were not necessary. Like, they... There are multiple points in the show where they are... Where it's easy to make the correct decision and no one does. Like, great, you found the Rust Eaters. You took the thing down. Don't let it sit out there. Harvest the fucking Rust Eaters. Like, get a bunch of big-ass bags of those things and just have them for when you need to, like, back up. Don't wait for your sister to give her dose to somebody else. Give, like, make a dose. Make a certain... Make a... Fifth dose, dose your sister, and you're done. And I know this part of this is like tension building and it's like important and all this other bullshit. But it's not it doesn't work when the when the right answer is so in front of you and so easy. And Because the show has all of those like has, has the has the pacing problem, has of issue in committing to characters being dead, um it it's it's a fun show, but it at moments seems kind of bloodless and lifeless if that makes any sense. It like the consequences the consequences clearly aren't sticking except for the bad guys. The show itself is only just starting to do this intertwining of character that I don't think it will get to do more of. Because I'm not, because from what I can see on um, on um, my anime list, this thing was rated average, and I would rate it average or below average because it it's just kind of another. Big action show that only got one season. And, and the shame of that is that it may have only got one season, but it had such a, it had such a fucking hook. I, I mean, the the trailer basically ends with Milo kissing the um, pink haired girl and ripping the balloon worm out. ...out of her throat with his teeth. In this moment where you're like... ...oh, fuck. This is gonna be... ...the shit, right? And then the show is kind of... ...not that 24-7. It tried to be that 24-7. In its best moments it is. In its best character design moments... ...you get... ...character designs like Bisco. You get character designs like Pau you get characters like Bisco or Pau. But in its worst moments, you get characters like Korokawa. You get character designs like um, Milo, who is, like I said, he's a very he's a very of the time character design. And that's not, and he's made to be kind of the opposite um, side of the coin to Bisco, but Bisco looks cool as shit. Milo looks okay. Milo looks the way Milo looks. And then Pow Wu is like step on me mommy levels of awesome. And, and then the show, but the last thing I want to talk about, this show starts to do this thing that any show with a cast of characters does if it's smart. And that is they start to intertwine the characters. And they start to, like, have the characters have relationships, not just with their immediate, like... Not with just with the immediate character that they are closest to, but with other characters. So in Palu's case, Palu kind of, like, gets real horny for Bisco. <laughs> and they... And they had a moment there. They had a moment there where they've, like, very clearly made a declaration of like okay Pauu want to Pauu's wa, here to fuck and she wants to fuck Bisco and then they don't do anything with like that at the end of the show at the end of the show Pauu is like in charge of the city because Krakow is clearly dead and she's no longer having rust and she's wearing a really official government uniform Instead of like the cool ass like high collared cape thing she was wearing earlier, it, it, like earlier in the show, but they they make they make it so Bisco and Milo are on the run again. They could have had a really interesting premise set up for second season if they didn't do that. If Milo and Bisco were like. Now playing slightly more in the lo- inside the lines, and like you saw the big, Pantheon, and like fucking, Paul has taken f- has taken Bisco full on as his as her wife, because of the great- there's a great there's this great um moment in the show where Milo has fully realized that his sister is like oh. My sister had the hots for you. You know that, right? You would make an excellent wife because, in everyone's head, the person who would wear the pants in that scenario is never going to be Briscoe. It's always going to be Powell, and that it's just like a fun, dumb thing of like you make a great wife so- someday, Briscoe. And Briscoe's like, God damn it! But it's just like. If I had to describe this show, in I know I keep bringing up like other shows in reference to this, but in this show's defense, it, it it's very clearly a show that is inspired by a lot of stuff that came before it, and just has this incredibly unique sci like hard sci-fi treatment that it. Just bungled in because purely because of its runtime. They could have something they could have done with this show. They could have had a flashback episode that was like out of nowhere with no explanation that was just about the testogen, that was just about the development of the testogen and like what the deal is there and why it was deployed and all of this shit. And that somewhere in the middle of the show. And then that would have set up the big, the big scary nightmare monster in a way that it just wasn't set up very well. They could have had, and in that same episode they could have explained why everybody wear, rides giant weird animals all the time. You know, the, there's all of these question marks in, that this show presents and just doesn't explain and that would be fine if it didn't explain any of them. If it was like, un- if. And then the thing that really soft sci fi usually does is that, like, soft sci fi is unconcerned with the technical world of that it exists in. It is concerned with the, like, small stories it's telling. And oftentimes you get those kinds of things in. Shows to have long, long-running fan bases and have become kind of franchised and are known. You get those things in stuff like Star Wars, like I mentioned at the beginning. Everybody understands the deal with the Star Wars universe. That way, Star Wars can tell a story in that universe and know that everybody watching it will usually understand it all. Um you see this in anime in a show like um at this point actually i just talked about the show you see this in psychopath psychopath has had enough seasons and enough build up and the the core premise is specific enough where they you've seen all the moving parts in the background of like the hue system and psycho and psycho the like psychoanalysis cop guns and shit like that that they can then tell a story in that universe and, every, and, and it's fleshed out, it's explained. This is also true of super long-running shonen stuff. Eventually you get to like a tipping point where everything in the universe is explainable and you understand it all. This, is, this happens in shows like Bleach where they've run Bleach Thousand Year Blood War. It's just another arc in Bleach. You understand all the moving parts and the very specific ones that you don't, they'll just tell you. They'll just tell like they'll just tell you and you'll understand the implications because you understand the greater world. What happens when you don't give yourself the room to do that all, and you only give yourself the room for one fucking thing, is you get the kind of letdown that this is. You get the, so like, oh, fuck, the testogen back. And then everybody has... And then all the viewers are left, like, wait, what is the testogen? It's never been mentioned until this point. Fuck you. And that's not a great place to have your viewer be. Um, The best it could kind of work out is if you... And even this isn't really a great option here, because Ereka 7 AO is... The sequel series to Elricca Seven, and Elricca Seven did all the explaining for Ao's world, for Ao's story to be dropped into the future of that world. And they even did they did it so much to the point where by the end of Eureka Seven, you're not on like fake Earth, you're on real Earth. So it explains when you show up in Elricca Seven Ao on real Earth. <laughs> And then, even in that show, it's like, hey, we weren't clear about how Ao got, about how Al got here. Let's be real clear. Let's take a couple episodes and just be real clear about that. And then we'll take that moment and we'll just run like the wind with it, right into a mediocre thing. And this, this show. It's missing connective tissue all over the place. It has that connective tissue right up until episode six, when they find the when they find the key to Pandora's box, when they find the solution to their problem, and then it makes the decision to make that a problem too, and it's, it's a. I bounced off this show when I originally watched it because it was really cool, but I just, I just didn't keep up with it. But what I suspect now is I bounced off of this show because my brain was probably working too hard in that first episode to connect everything together properly. And my brain also was probably like, hey, this isn't a great sign of things to come this is how they chose to treat their first episode, and do I think it's a terrible show? No, I think it's oozing style. I think it's it's got a banger of an opener, as you'll have heard, and a banger of a ED, of an ED song, which you'll hear. But I think it struggling with what it wants to be about and how it wants to handle its story and how big or how small that it wants that story to be and actually this in the same way this show struggles in the same but it does. it's not as visually or conceptually strong as Gangsta and if you know anything about Gangsta Gangsta kind of F- fucked over the studio that made it, <laughs> basically. Like it, it was its last thing. It was Mongolobe's last thing before last dying light, basically. And that show is kind of gloriously terrible. <laughs> it's glorious because it's got this big, deep world that they did not in the same. It's got this big, deep setting and world in the same way that Black Lagoon has. But it did not handle it well. It just didn't handle it well. It didn't it didn't have the depths of touch or understanding to like pick it up and to like pick that up and hold it properly. And this this show doesn't get there doesn't really even get to where gangsta was because it doesn't it scales up it scales out at first appropriately and then it scales out again and it scales out way too big way too wide i would myself um but the and the long and short of it is that it doesn't it doesn't survive the transition particularly well it has like a it but it the thing i will say is it, is it is stylish it is an interesting premise it is it is visually arresting in ways in in its own way but it isn't and you take that into account with all of the negatives, and it comes out being kind of just fine. And it comes out being, it comes out being about these, about Milo and about Bisco. And not really being concerned about the larger world, but it wants you to believe it is in the moment. So on that note, this is where I'm going to leave it. Um, If you like this episode, new episodes come out every Thursday and every other Sunday. Thursday shows are like this. They are about a specific show or property. Sunday shows are about something more meta-textual. You can go listen to the previous Sunday show all about it's like the cult of the individual and how it represents itself through anime. Um, the previous Thursday show is about police in a pod. You can definitely go check that out. Um, I have been Alex. This has been Lunchbox Radio. I will t- And I will talk to you on next Thursday.